I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. I first met Eric in graduate school at Springfield College, and I've always been impressed with his strength and conditioning knowledge, but more importantly, his genuine qualities of character. In this episode, Tim and I will dive into the following topics with Eric. The importance of capacity and strength endurance, specifically why Eric values a 15 to 20 rep max test, why seeing what someone does under high levels of stress is important, and the actual protocol that he utilizes. How he has extracted useful information from the FMS to evaluate movement quality without wrongly associating it with injury prediction, and not making the mistake of throwing it all out. How he defines bioenergetics and why it is different than traditional conditioning categories. How everything ties back to energy and everything is a function of intensity. How to use the process of elimination to determine variables to prioritize. How he partitions programming. How he uses the the T-shaped learning concept as a framework to educate himself on a certain topic, and how he has realized the utility of machines within the last five years. So without further ado, here's our episode with Eric Smith. We'll be back to the show after this quick message. FMS, FRC, PRI, AED, NSFW, the world, specifically the industries of physical therapy and strength conditioning, is filled with confusing acronyms, certifications, and jargon. If you find that you've taken a metric shitload of these types of courses, but have no ability to carry the information over into your practice, you don't need more information. You need a mentor, someone to act as a sounding board, someone to guide you towards putting seemingly disparate parts of the movement and health puzzle together, someone to help you develop your own model that you can immediately put into action. While I certainly don't claim to know everything, I'm happy to serve in that role. My one-on-one mentorship calls are 60 minutes and will leave you with a clearer, more confident idea of how to best leverage what you already know in order to best help the next client that walks through your door. Stop collecting piles of three-ring binders and start taking a more active role in your professional development. Find out more by going to timrichart.com services. And now, back to the show. Welcome to More Train, Less Pain. We have a very special guest here today, Eric Schmidt. I went to graduate school with Eric, and correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, but we didn't really speak too much. We probably said about 10 words to each other the whole two years. Yeah. Well, you were quiet <laughs> back then, right? You were, you were quiet, I, yeah. So, but yeah. You caught no. me. You caught me. I was super quiet. Um, and I was also like commuting from New Hampshire, so I was like in and out. Yeah. But what's amazing to me and just like something I love about life is how you reconnect with people and you know it's been so great getting um back into talking to you frequently and hearing what you're doing and just exchanging you know questions on Instagram I think I've, I've really enjoyed that and uh basically so this is your first legitimate podcast which is an epic moment here so we are pumped to have you on uh, the first thing I want to kind of dive into is Tim and I both highly value um, our own training routines as, you know, a way to 
you know, figure out how to implement things with our clients and athletes better. So the first question is, you know, can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about your own training habits and passions? Yeah. So, I mean, they have, they have changed throughout the years. You know, I used to, um, I used to, to be an athlete back in the day where I competed in like team sports. Um, and then, you know, got a passion for the pump, uh, which led me into like the bodybuilding world. Um, and then I was an Olympic weightlifter. Like when, when we went to grad school, I competed in Olympic weightlifting. Uh, yeah. Davidson got me into strongman training. So I did some strongman training. And then, uh, you know, now I'm just trying to keep up with my activities, of daily living. So uh, making sure I can, you know, reach to the back of the fridge or the top of a pantry. Like that's, <laughs> that's my main motivation for training right now. So um, yeah, my, my routine in all seriousness is, is a little sporadic at the moment just because of our travel schedule, but uh, try to keep up with, try to keep up with training on a regular basis. Like frequency is my driver. And then in terms of like what I'm doing, I still sort of treat, like I've always treated the, the weight room as sort of a lab in general. So there's like always little things that I'm trying to maybe touch up and improve upon that I'm implementing with athletes. So that, that drives some of like what I'm actually doing in the, you know, from a training standpoint. Um, so, you know, some of which at the moment is trying to maybe evaluate, uh, strength right now. So we got a, you know, an IMTP device. And, and so I'm messing around with that a little bit, um, and, and doing some things with that. But, you know, other than that, it's just keeping to the fundamentals, trying to stay strong, trying to stay fit, athletic, you know, as much as I can. So, that's um, right. No, no more putting barbells over, over your head quick. Yeah. I still throw them around every once in a while. <laughs> it's too much fun, but, uh, but not as much as I used to. I want to hold your feet to the fire a little bit here. What was the last workout you did? Oh, yesterday. Uh, yesterday I, okay. So yesterday I just did a, um, uh, echo bike intervals. So I just did like these, these zone five intervals and a minute on a minute off, uh, for, did three sets of five, a minute on, minute off yesterday um, at like 400 watts. That was my workout. Um, so Epic. Yeah. <laughs> I always tell the story about how, you know, you mentioned Pat Davison, and it's pretty amazing that we were both there at the same time when he was a professor at Springfield College. And I always tell the story about my master's thesis of, you know, I did fine. I passed. And then Pat approached me after and he's like, Hey, Michelle, like, you know, that was fine. But he was like, I expect way more from you. And if you're going to continue here, you need to step it up. And I was like, Oh fuck. Like, (laughs) yeah, he's right. And, And that literally set a fire to me about like, keep going on in school and pretty much like everything that I've done after. So, you know, you have any good Pat Davison stories about, or maybe how, that time at Springfield college may have influenced your career. Oh my gosh. Yes. I mean, stories like the dude's crazy. So, you know, that's what we love about him. Right. He's just like, uh, he's, he's just a, he's a crazy dude. I I love him. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in general, like Pat has this ability to like inspire in a very unique way, um, to people that I think are in there in, in like inherently motivated in this field that want to learn and grow he has this like unique ability to inspire and, and uh, he definitely lit that same fire, you know, under, under me when I got to Springfield um, because there was this, this dude who like I had th- at this point, I, I really enjoyed training 
and like thought that that was like my main avenue of just like learning. It was like, I got to train myself and get experience, but didn't really prioritize as much like the education piece. And then I remember getting there and being like, oh, this dude's a savage, like in the weight room, but he's also crazy smart, you know, and like values like the, the education piece. And, and we had some conversations early on where he inspired me to really step my game up from like a, just like read more, like study more, learn more um, in certain areas that I thought was like, at the time I just needed to hear it, but I needed to see somebody who was like kind of about that life too. That was like, you know, trained and competed and did these things. So, um, you know, that was probably a turning point for me as, as well. Um, I don't have like, I mean, I have some, some stories of like, of, of, uh, yeah, I have some crazy stories. Of when we did. I'm just trying to think of like where so, to go. With that. No, no but, stories of him telling you, yeah, you're not good enough. You need yeah. to, you, you need to move on or, or step it up here. Well, I have a story of him like when we were competing in strongman. I'm doing a farmer carry competition, and I'm like carrying these heavy ass farmer farmer bars, and like walking to the end of this, like trying to like finish, and I'm like you know stumbling, and I'm slowing down, and I'm like you know tripping over myself and and he's just right there walking with me like red face yelling at me like obscenities and like you know and I'm like there's no chance I make it and I stumble to the finish line and and you know it was just like that's the type of dude he is but then he also you know taught me a ton of stuff in the classroom and all this yeah, yeah. He, I got plenty of like Pat Davidson stories we could <laughs> on that but so did you always know you wanted to work with high level athletes because I think there's you know, a general overall sense or desire in, you know, physical therapy, strength conditioning, personal training, even of wanting to work with athletes. And I think there's a, a many, many things associated with that in terms of maybe you think you have more options with people. Maybe you want to be associated with people who can express these high speeds and move these high loads, or it's associated with, you know, a higher career status sometimes. So, you know, did you always know you wanted to work with professional athletes? And, you know, how has that been? Yeah, I would, the answer for sure is no. Um, definitely didn't have like this, this early dream to, to work with, you know, professional athletes. Um, when I, when I finished school, when I was, when I felt like I was pretty directed in what I was going to do professionally, I wanted to work in college. Like I wanted to work, uh, I wanted to be a director in college, you know, I wanted to kind of run my own own program and have the ability to, to work with, you know, vast, like tons of athletes, different sports, um, and just be able to influence as many, as many people as I could. And, you know, college was the, was where I wanted to go. So I never really had this like burning fire, I guess, professionally to, to work with professional athletes, but you know, I was really lucky. My first job was at UCLA. And, and I mean, a lot of those athletes that I've worked with ended up going on to the professional world. So I was exposed to some pretty high level, um, you know, some pretty high level, like athletes in their, in their skill sets early on. Um, but I think it's sort of just as natural evolution through the field of like, you know, there's, depending on where you're at, what job you have, there's always logistics that come in and factor into your ability to just carry out the things that you're doing. And so, you, you know, I mean, the more kind of I grew and evolved as a college strength coach, the more I just, I wanted to just influence more. I wanted to be able to do more. I wanted to go deeper in certain areas where, you know, maybe I was handcuffed by some, you know, some time or logistics and stuff. So sort of the natural evolution to get into the point where I am is just having the opportunity to really, uh, to work with, with high level athletes for sure, but to, to be surrounded by a really, really, um, 
awesome staff and just have the ability to take individual cases to a level of depth that I never had the ability to do. I think that's been really exciting, at least right now in my career. So, um, and then, you know, I think the, the environment's awesome. I think the, the working in high level sport is always a, an amazing thing just to see what these guys are capable of doing at this level with their bodies and the, what their skill sets are. It's pretty, it's pretty fascinating uh, thing to watch on a day-to-day basis and be so close to it. Very cool. And I think mm. uh, it's sort of the natural segue to the next thing that Michelle and I wanted to discuss with you, which is, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about kind of the difference between being in a college setting and having, you know, 300 or 400 athletes that are sort of under your purview. And then now being in the NBA where you have you know, 20, 15, 20, 25, something like that. Um, we've talked to one of your colleagues at the, with the Grizzlies, Jared Boyd, um, who's a physical therapist there. I was just kind of curious, like when you, when you get a new athlete, uh, let's say, let's say they're coming off an injury or maybe it's a return to play scenario. What is that assessment process like and how much coordination is there between you and Jared? Like, what's that look like from day one? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely a, it's, it's a, it's a variation of things depending on the athlete that, that we're getting. Um, especially if that's a, like a return to play athlete, that's maybe dealing with some, uh, some injuries, um, and, and incapable of playing at the moment. So, uh, the process starts with just kind of like the communication surrounding the individual that we're, we're working with. And that communication is going to cover a, a range of different topics. Um, who this person is, what their history is, what their injury history is. Um, you know, so we kind of dive into some of the medical things and, and what we're dealing with there. And then we kind of have our slew of like evaluations that we'll do. Um, some of which are pretty standard depending on, you know, just like across the board, maybe some, some broad things that are done with pretty much everybody. And then there's some things that are maybe a little more specific. Um, and the way that those tasks are sort of delineated is dependent on, on what they are and what our, what our skill sets are myself and, and Jared. So, you know, there's definitely like, there's a, a structural piece to this. Um, you know, there's maybe a, a, a qualitative piece to this in terms of like, we're looking at structural evaluations and, and sort of looking into, again, the injury history will guide us towards certain directions of their bodies that maybe we got to be able to evaluate. Jared is definitely better, better suited to, to handle things like that as a physical therapist. Um, the qualitative piece in terms of maybe some movements, uh, looking at, you know, things like an FMS, even uh, SFMA type stuff, um, where we really dive into uh, movement quality and just sort of seeing how, how some of these guys will organize, you know, uh, pattern tasks that we're probably going to try to load in some fashion. Um, you know, and then there's, there's different, other different evaluations that are done. So I think it, it kind of starts with this communication of divvying up these tasks. Um, I'll have my own slew of kind of things that I'm going to look at to try to paint more of a picture on, on maybe some of the performance end. So looking at strength and, you know, uh, and, and power and things like that and, and capacity and things like that. And just having our, our, our slew of assessments that we're doing. Um, but that's sort of how tasks are delineated initially. You know, we want to kind of collect some information, create more of an objective picture surrounding the individual that we're working with so we can be better targeted with the interventions. And so 
it's it's sort of dynamic in a sense, but we 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 know what our kind of roles and responsibilities are, what's available to us in our immediate room because we work in different rooms. <laughs> so we have things that kind of live in there that make up what we're what we're able to do. So um, and then from there, it's just a back and forth about you know how we're going to approach approach intervening and trying to create you know positive adaptations to to support this individual towards the goal. Is there, is there directionality with that assessment? Like, are they working with the medical staff and with Jared first and foremost, and then that's going to inform the kind of objective data that you're seeking with your own assessment, or is everything sort of happening all at once? You mentioned that you're in two separate rooms. So I, I you know, I would imagine you're not doing the same assessment at the same time. Yeah, there's, there's directionality. I mean, in general, you know, this is kind of where logistics play in and how we organize our schedules. Um, in general, they'll see Jared before they'll see me almost on a, on a regular basis that, that changes depending on things, but um, you know, so they'll, they'll see Jared first and, and he'll, you know, he'll do his thing and then I'll do, you know, I'll have my session sort of following that. So the directionality generally goes from the, the medical space um, doing the PT work and then goes to the, goes to the, you know, the weight room and, and working with me. Um, and even from the get go, when we're doing our evaluations, that'll be, uh, that'll be kind of the, the process in most cases. So. And in, in terms of objective data that you're looking to gather when you're interacting with an athlete for the first time, or when they've been cleared to start to like actually kind of, you know, get the fuck after it. Um, what are two or three metrics that you're taking on that first day that you're rechecking periodically? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I mean, I want to see what they're capable of. So I, I would like to, I would like to evaluate, uh, you know, strength, and I would like to evaluate capacity, you know, strength, endurance. Um, so looking at like 15, 20 rep maxes on certain things is something I would love to love to do. Um, and we could get into obviously, you know, doing that on day one can present some challenges if you just think about like, not knowing something about somebody and bringing them in there and pushing them to failure. Mm. Uh, but something I'm much more comfortable with in this environment. So being able to like evaluate uh, for me, like what they're capable of doing, I think to establish sort of a baseline and some of the, and some of the exercises that I'm going to going to load. Um, that's, that's probably like one of my day ones is, is probably a capacity um, potentially a, a three to five rep max and something so I have sort of this framework of like what this person's capable of from like a high force output to what they're capable of carrying out, maybe from a capacity standpoint. And then we'll do, depending on the year or time of year, I really like to see what they're, what they're able to do, like in like a five minute bike ride, you know, um, and just really getting after it. So, um, you know, and there's again, reasons to choose that as a, as an evaluation, but that, that at least gives me information that I can now use as programming, uh, you know, for, from a programming standpoint, because at the end of the day, they come in there, I'm writing programs to obviously try to direct them towards some certain adaptation. So I need to have information to kind of structure my, uh, you know, my interventions. And so for me, it's like, it's just simple stuff. It's stuff that we probably all do. Uh, but I really like to push guys to see what they're capable of, because without that, I don't know if, if my, you know, my program is going to be effective at creating the adaptation. I want to actually just see what they can do initially and then go from there. Totally. And I find it really interesting. So we had this recent talk with Jared, your colleague, the physical therapist, and he mentioned that in, in terms of like a general preparedness block or an in-season block, he feels like the priority is 
sort of exposing athletes to a variety of movements to maintain joint range of motion, making sure that they can yield like all, like all of these things to keep athletes healthy and probably nothing that the lay person would think is, you know, really the focus of like an NBA performance staff or NBA performance team. So I found yeah. it, you know, the two that you mentioned, like the five minute bike ride and then like mm -hmm. a 15 or 20 rep max, like neither one of those is like a max height box jump or like a vert or yeah. so it, it seems like you guys are very much in line with the like we got to keep these guys available and make sure they have enough aerobic capacity to buffer the stress they're already going to be getting than pushing up a one rep max or adding an inch and a half to their vert yeah for sure i mean you have to look at the population we're dealing with and and you know what th these guys their job their livelihood is to play the game you know and so definitely want to be able to support that in every way and so um you know, it's, 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 it's the number one priority for sure. Very cool. Now, and uh, go ahead, Michelle. Why do you value uh, strength endurance so much? Great question. Uh, well, I mean, we label these things as like, I label strength endurance as just the ability to perform sort of this, this task for a, a longer period of time. I think because it, it challenges their, uh, their ability to strain a little bit in a, in a manner that requires um, that that's probably more apt to like what they have to deal with the conditions that their bodies are dealing with on a regular basis in the sport itself. Like if you look at the game and, and what these guys have to be able to do, I mean, they're, you know, their heart rates up to 170, you know, average for the majority of the time that they're spent spending on the court. Um, the conditions that their bodies are in is very much like, you know, stressed and fatigued, um, consistently, you know, and, and being able to do these emergent athletic tasks under those conditions, I think is really important. So I'd love to just see what their certain muscles are capable of doing, uh, for, for longer periods of time. So if you take like a 20 rep max, for instance, you're looking at, you know, 45, 60 seconds of time under tension, you know, specific to certain, certain muscles and certain patterns. And it's, it's a, it's a challenging thing to do, but, um, you know, I'd love to see how, how, guys respond to that sort of challenge, you know, like what is their, what is their preferred strategy to deal with, you know, high levels of, of discomfort um, <laughs> in general, you know, because you, you, you really, you really see a lot, like under high levels of stress, you begin to see, you know, it's that Jacksonian dissolution, right? You can begin to see more and more, the more stress you add in terms of like, how do people handle these conditions, you know? Um, so I think, and, and just, being able to, to measure that objectively, I think is, is important in some fashion um, because I'm going to program some of that stuff, you know, I'm going to put stuff in there consistently. So. And how much do you take into consideration? Like if someone hits, you know, a 15 rep max, well, you can say that's like a physical objective data point. Like this person moved this amount of weight for 15 reps. They, that's physical output. But then you're also like referring to maybe like the psychological component of that as well. Like is this person like uh, able to push themselves beyond like a comfort level? And I think there's, um, you know, a non-physical component to that. Like how is that what you're also trying to like get after a little bit? Yeah, I think to some degree, I mean, I, there's like this, this concept of like the psychobiological model, um, where we look at, you know, what, like how somebody handles fatigue, you know, like what, what does somebody do under high levels of stress? 
And I, I think that tells you a lot. I don't know if I prioritize or value necessarily like if they like what their what their sort of like affect is performing something like that, but more so, you know, what is what is their body doing um, mm -hmm. in a sense? Like, are they tensing up in certain ways to try to, you know, complete the task? Are they altering their joint positions to try to find strategies that, you know, that are, are probably going to compound and, and be, you know, lead to maybe a more cost over time. Um, but, you know, but part of that, I guess, plays in like how guys, do they, do they like to strain? Do they, do they not like to strain? You know, I think those are things that, that do probably matter. Um, because again, at some level, these are, these are some of the conditions that are, that they need to deal with. I think athletes need to deal with. So, you know, at some level, I do like to just see what, what that ends up being like, uh, you know, for them. But, um, but yeah, I don't know how much like this, sometimes I think about, about this topic. And then I think like, are we talking about mental toughness? Are we talking about, you know, yeah. what are we talking about here? And I'm like, I don't really know if I, if I think to, you know, there's so many different ways to be successful. I don't know if like, you have to have a certain like, like mentality about, about yourself to, to get to a, a, a high level kind of thing. I think there's a lot of guys that get, get here with bunch of different ways um but more so i think about just how they perform the task and, and what they're trying to do to accomplish it Makes sense very cool and, and there's it's funny i think there's a high degree of consistency with uh with your staff like we were chatting with with jared the other day just about this notion i think the the example was michael jordan where it's just like you know that guy wanted to run through a fucking wall like yeah, at, at yeah, any yeah. get like he was just fueled by hate so it's like if you give him like a 20 rep max on a goblet squat, like he's gritting his teeth and pissed off from the first repetition. Yeah. And probably the athletes that are going to be able to, you know, handle a 15 or a 20 year career at a high level, like probably they're the kind of they're the type that can start pretty relaxed and then they can turn it on when they need to and then they can turn it off when when they need to. So it's interesting. It's like, you know, that 15 or 20 rep max of just say a goblet squat, like it could be like a little a little microcosm of that pattern. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's your spot on, you know, and it tells you a lot about, you know, there's like like one thing I you realize more and more is there's so many roads to get here. You know, there's so many like types of, of, of athletes. Some of them are incredibly skilled and just find their way to like this level. And then some of them, you know, maybe grit their way here, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so there's just, and, and neither one is like devaluing the, the in, in amount of like work or effort that it takes to, to become a high level, you know, professional athlete in any sport. It's just, there's just different dispositions that ultimately get to this, this place. And I think you can learn so much about, you know, what is the preferred like strategy? How do people attack things? You know, how do they attack the game? How do they attack the, you know, the training and stuff. And, and there's just so many different ways. I think we value like the Michael Jordan mindset, right. Of just like the dude will just run through a wall, um, you know, but he was, he was an incredible athlete, leader, worker, all these different things that I think people just, kind of gravitate towards, but it's not the only way, you know, I mean, there's, there's other people that have maybe a little bit of a different outlook on things and, mm -hmm. and, uh, but can be not equally successful probably in some cases, you know, Michael Jordan's by the, the goat. Um, I think LeBron's the goat maybe, but who knows, uh, <laughs> a different time. but either way, it's like, um, you know, I think there's just so many ways to get here. And I think it's really, it's really interesting to just, for me, I only can, I can only intervene on certain things. It's my job. So, Right. Uh, I'm going to look at how they handle the work that, 
that I'm putting out. Yeah, you you can't build a little chip on their shoulder. Yeah, probably not, you know, (laughs) probably not. Along the same lines, so um, I was reading an article that you wrote for Simply Faster. I don't know if it was like like in the middle of last year or if, it, or if it's a couple years old, but I, I think you were in the college setting when you wrote this article. Am I correct? Yeah, well, I was at UC Santa Barbara. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, you talk about it, it was an article about movement assessments and essentially like what a lot of the more common ones get wrong. But it seemed like your overall theme was to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I know in our industry circa 2021, like there's a lot of hate for the FMS, for the SFMA. Um, so I was just hoping to get you to talk a little bit about kind of what you think those more basic movement systems get right. And then what you're doing now from a movement assessment standpoint, like how you've taken that information and made it your own and improved upon it and made it something that's actually usable for you. Yeah, this is a great question. And, you know, my environment has changed, you know, 180 degrees since getting into this, into this uh, setting. But, um, you know, that, that process for me was just trying to solve a specific problem in my setting. And that problem to me was that, I wanted to be able to, like, I value the strategies that people use to execute, you know, exercises. I value that. I value the, you know, it's not just let's complete this task, but it's let's complete this task with certain conditions so that we can hopefully, you know, I can predict better outcomes of how this person is going to respond. So, um, so movement quality, if you will, is, is something that I, I value. But then when you get to the point of like, well, how do you measure movement quality? Like, I mean, that is, that is a ridiculous thing to try to do because it's, there's so many, again, there's so many strategies that people use um, based on the task. Like it's such an emergent process that to actually quantify movement is ridiculously challenging. You know, I mean, there's so many directions you can go with that. And I think the FMS was maybe our industry's, I don't know if it's the first attempt, but it was certainly like the first attempt that really blew up. And, um, you know, people started really using maybe more mainstream, at least like, especially I did early on. Um, but then, you know, research comes out that's looking at, okay, well, what are you trying to do with this movement screen? Are you trying to predict something? Are you trying to like, like, what are you trying to do with it? And I think that's where maybe it got pushed in a direction that it didn't belong because it's like, how are you going to like predicting injuries and like, this is again, another ridiculous topic is, is probably impossible with our level of like assessments and, and what we're capable of measuring at the moment, um, in general, but so it's like, what are we doing with this, this thing? So, you know, I think there was a lot of, uh, a lot of people who jumped on the, jumped the gun and, and maybe try to do too much with the screen potentially early on, like I did, like where I was kind of gung-ho on this number 14, you know, and people getting a 14 on this FMS and whatever, whatever. Um, and then, you know, so then that sort of, sort of shifted to, to people maybe realizing over time that it wasn't, it wasn't doing what I think they were, people were using it for, I was using it for certainly. Um, so you throw it away, you say, oh, like, you know, quantifying movement doesn't really do much. Um, it's not, it's not changing my injuries or anything like that. So like, what is it actually doing? Um, and then it goes away. Um, but you, you sort of, maybe I missed the, like, I had to come back to it years later to say, well, what does it do for me? It shows me how a person tries to, you know, attempts to execute a pattern that I'm probably going to want to load in some fashion, Right. I think I'm, I'm probably going to want to load a squat in some fashion. I want to load a, a split squat in some fashion or a, you know, um, or a lunge. 
you know, I want to load a hinge. I want to load these things. Like those are key components of how I program. Um, but like, how do I know where to maybe start with somebody or how do I know where, you know, what, what sorts of things that they try to do with their bodies to orient themselves, to be able to achieve these tasks. And so that's where it comes back in as like, okay, I want to be able to evaluate movement in some fashion. And while, you know, there's plenty of reasons to maybe not value the FMS for whatever reason, whatever reasons you have, it's like, those are all things that I like to, I, I, I like to load, you know, I like to load, you know, pushing patterns, um, lunging patterns, hinging patterns, squatting patterns, these things. So to me, it just comes back into play of like, all right, well, there's a, there's a way to look at this and quantify it in some fashion. And I think layering on the, the idea of just being able to evaluate how somebody performs a task and, and not get too caught up in the score or whatever. Um, but just using the score to kind of give you some parameters as to how you evaluate it, I think is such a key thing. And so the attempt that I did at UCSB was like, I can't do an FMS because of my logistics, but I can do some of the patterns that make the most sense to me in a, in a you know, maybe a quick and effective fashion um, to evaluate, you know, 450 athletes. So that was that attempt was kind of that article. But yeah, in general, I, I don't think you could throw these things away because at some level, I think everybody would nod their heads and say movement matters, um, you know, and, and how people accomplish these tasks, like it kind of matters. So uh, I think it's just a way to, again, way to quantify something that is probably really hard to do. So everybody maybe has their own way of thinking about that. Yeah, I, I love that. And just for the, for the benefit of the listener, so there were with your UC Santa Barbara movement screen, it sounds like there were five overall tests. There was an overhead squat. There was like a bilateral hinge, a supine, like a straight leg raise, I believe, and then a split squat. And then yeah. was, there, was there another bilateral squat in there? Was there a fifth movement? No, that was, that, that was the four. There was four things. So, okay. And, yeah. and then you rated them zero to two? Uh, it, was, it was a zero to three. It was zero. Okay. So, okay. So you kind of kept like the FMS convention with yeah. that. Yes. Yep. So with that, what I was trying to, uh, what I was really curious about reading the article, cause you laid out really nice progressions for all these patterns. So like starting someone like with a squat pattern, starting someone like wall supported isometric and then progressing the level of complexity. So with this data, are you prescribing discrete or did you describe prescribe discrete corrective exercises for the purpose of trying to get the zeros, the twos or the ones, the twos, or did you just sort of let that data drive where you were starting with your strength interventions? Yeah. Great question. I, I, I did both. You know, I think at the time, I, the most, to me, the most important thing is to basically know where to take this individual to drive training interventions, you know? And so that was kind of the key when you're dealing with such high numbers. I mean, again, I had, we had 450 student athletes at, it's in Santa Barbara with, you know, there was three of us, three strength coaches. So you do the math. There's a lot of athletes to very few uh, coaches, you know? Um, and so trying to, to have a process that allowed us to initially put people in positions to, to load that were, you know, as close to the ideal place to start, certainly, and, and to, to work. I think that was kind of the initial goal. Um, but the follow up was that was to create a culture of, of athletes, you know, student athletes that valued, you know, movement quality, like we value movement quality. So, you know, there's certain limitations that would prevent us from getting into positions like a, like a deep squad or a lunge, you know, there's certain limitations that would prevent us from doing so. And 
while I don't think like that's the end all be all, I do think that there's probably a, a good sense to maybe work on some of those limitations because when we talk about what they are, it's restrictions in joint motions, it's restrictions, mm-hmm. you know, um, in maybe like motor control, it's just restrictions in uh, your muscles ability to, you know, force production. It's like, those are the kind of components that, that kind of emerge into this task. So I think at some level we wanted to build a culture of, uh, of student athletes that valued that. And so, you know, that's where maybe some of the like alternative inter- interventions come in where it's like, all right, you're gonna do some foam rolling and you're gonna go through certain, you know, these certain series of, of uh, you know, of correctives, if you will. Um, but the most important thing still in my mind is like, where do you put somebody in a training from a training standpoint and how do you load them there? You know, so that was, that was our best attempt to do that in our setting. Yeah, when I was at uh, Northeastern University Sports Performance, I remember years of, you know, incoming uh, start of the fall season, we would get hundreds of athletes coming in for their physical screenings or medical screenings, and then the sports performance screenings. And, uh, you know, the staff on the inside called it, you know, like hell day, because like you were there 13, 14 hours, and the strength conditioning staff mostly was doing the FMS screen. We did all the tests, everything. And we had to all put it in like Excel sheets and this and that. And, you know, it was, it was a lot to do. Um, Daunting, yeah. Yeah. But we, we had a meeting, you know, after I think it was like the second year I was there and we was like, you know, what are we actually doing with this test? You know, is this just for, you know, to say we're looking at movement, you know, how is each individual coach using this test to make decisions? So what we did is we narrowed it down to just three or four of them, kind of like what you did. And then, you know, we used it as a way to follow up with specific athletes, uh, red flag certain athletes, especially looking for pain and zeros, and then maybe starting those athletes um, separately from the rest of the team during lifts. Um, So, you know, I think we were basically, we're doing a lot of tests that didn't mean anything to us or we weren't using that data. Um, and then just making sure you like you sit down and think, you know, how exactly are you using this, that you're, this is time that the athletes like putting in. So make sure, you know, you're putting it to work. Yeah. That's a huge point too, because if you do something that, you know, you're like, if you evaluate something that you don't follow up on, or you're actually not utilizing where an athlete can understand it, they're probably going to devalue that information themselves, you know, and I think it's, it's, and, and rightfully so, because if you're looking at something, you should probably, it should probably mean something to you in your process. And so again, whittling it down to those four movements um, was, was because I knew I was going to immediately use that. I immediately was going to take that information and put it in, in practice. And I had the ability to now reevaluate and uh you know and, and kind of see if there's any changes that occurred over time and stuff like that um, especially in college when you got kids coming in at 17 leaving at 22 you know you got some time there so yeah i think it's a huge point but what a what a daunting task for sure i i mean i would be incredibly impressed if you got even 10 percent of like 300 hungover 19 year olds <laughs> to, to give a shit about their active straight leg raise like that is no small feat yeah, yeah. Sometimes it turned into a joke where like, you know, a freshman to junior year, every like fall would come in and be like, oh, here's the FMS that we never do again throughout the year. (laughs) But the college setting to me was probably the highlight of my career in terms of when I learned the most, like you can't go a week without basically changing yourself really as a coach and learning something completely different. 
especially surrounded by a good staff. And like you mentioned, you know, you have athletes, you know, you have athletes for four years and mm-hmm. you can do a lot in that four years. I bet, you know, other types of setting, like for myself, I found the private setting a bit difficult because, you know, some clients are, you know, inconsistent or I only see once a week or we'll go on vacation for a few months or kind of in and out. And then, you know, I can't imagine like the NBA um, season, which, you know, uh, a guy could get signed and then like a few months later, you know, sent somewhere else or traded. So you have no idea um, how long you have with an athlete. We will be back after this quick message. Are you ready to start lifting heavier, outlasting others, and moving like a gazelle? Oh, you better get ready for the Endure and Repeat 20-week training program coming April 5th, 2021. Not only will the program include large amounts of program writing educational content, such as an overview explaining progressions and training concepts, but the program will also help you start prioritizing your own fitness, training consistently with sustainable strategies while getting yoked, and using trackable metrics to watch yourself progress. And the program includes videos for every single exercise to avoid you scratching your head about what you're supposed to be doing like other training programs out there. If you're willing to put in the work, this will be the most rewarding training process you have ever embarked upon. Head over to michellebolin-training.com to learn more. And now back to the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. And just to build off what both of you were saying, which I think is such an important point for all the clinicians and coaches and trainers listening. It's like something standardized like like the FMS or like the SFMA might serve as a really, really nice starting point. But what Michelle and Eric have both talked about is like this, this method of pruning that to that which is only essential for decision making. Yeah. And I just think about like when I was first exposed to PRI stuff when I was like a really young physical therapist on like 2013 or something like I would do all 20 ranges of motion that you could possibly get and then my intervention was really only ever based on like one or two of those or I do like the same thing with most with most folks and it's just like that's such a big step forward when you can take something that's generalizable but bulky and start to customize it and make it more lean make it more agile make it more sense in your own practice yeah that, no. that, yeah, I think that comes with like developing your own coaching identity, right? And experience. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's just a, a, a process of like, I feel like the evolution of our, of, of ourselves as strength coaches or, you know, practitioners is the process of elimination. You know, it's just sort of getting down to what the, what the most critical components of, you know, uh, of this are and what, what do you need to know to intervene in a way that's positive for what you're trying to accomplish. And I think, whittling things down is is a key to that awesome all right eric we gotta get into bioenergetics because you're turning into the bioenergetics guy you know in the underground sense yeah I don't know about that. <laughs> so can you just talk a little bit about uh, the difference between maybe traditional aerobic and anaerobic categorizations of energy systems um, and then you know how you view how that differs from bioenergetics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's a big topic because bioenergetics is looking at just all the metabolic processes involved in just being able to generate energy, right? So mm-hmm. when we're talking about that, most of the time we're talking about, you know, bioenergetics at the muscle. Um, 
because that's what we're, we're concerned with. Of course, the brain takes energy, the heart takes energy, you know, um, all these different tissues. But <clears throat> the, the way that, that we generally want to talk about bioenergetics is at the muscular level. Um, and so traditionally, I remember being like the, the traditional way that we were taught bioenergetics maybe um, is, is sort of like partitioning these different processes into time frames, right? So you have like the uh, ATP CP system, and then you have the glycolytic or the, you know, anaerobic system, and then you have this aerobic system, and it's sort of partitioned into these different time frames that one system is more prioritized in this time frame versus another, uh, another time frame, you know? And so, you know, that was, that's kind of the, I guess, old model, I guess, if you look up some of the, if you look into pretty much any physiology textbook from, I don't know, few years ago even or maybe even today i don't really study those but today like there's there's just this this kind of you know these three systems that work along these different time continuums and it's like that has been pretty much debunked at this point in terms of like you know they all work at once and it's just this interplay that's occurring this kind of orchestra of events where the atp cp system the glycolytic system and the you know aerobic system are are they're all working kind of continuously um, to, to try to generate energy. So there's been like research that's come out that's sort of shown that these things are happening. Um, and the basis of that is the fact that we can measure things that are better, like we can measure things more effectively now than we could before, you know? So I think what the old model was just our best attempt to understand reality in a way that we could measure reality and that reality was measured in a way that doesn't make any sense anymore. Because if we look at these kind of instruments and these techniques to measure um, this energy process, we realize that like, you know, for, for, for instance, I'll get to the point, like the aerobic system is the main driver. Like it's, everything is aerobic to some fashion, right? Like oxygen is always involved in this process. Like if you look at PCR, I mean, there's a great paper that shows like phosphocreatine and O2, they respond exactly like simultaneously, like, you know, when PCR goes down, oxygen goes down. When PCR goes up, oxygen goes up. It's like they're coupled, you know, so there is no like, there is no way to partition these things in, in, a, in a fashion of like just, you know, saying, oh, for first two seconds, this is happening. For, you know, 30 seconds, this is happening. Like there's no way to really do that anymore um, based on what we know. So, you know, the, the main kind of, the main like, area that I dove into to really understand that better was utilizing like MOXIE, which is like this technology that kind of measures uh, oxygen levels in real time. And it shows you immediately if you do a sprint, like oxygen just goes, zoop, it goes, you know, goes down right away. So it's not like there's like, you have to wait 60 seconds for like oxygen to become like, you know, depleted or something, or to become like the main driver of this sort of aerobic process. It's like that happens like immediately. So you know, the main main takeaway is that we just measure these things better. And that's why you can't really get glued to maybe one one form of understanding reality in our field, because it's probably going to change when we get better at looking at it, you know, so, um, and that's certainly true, I think, with bioenergetics. Right. And is there something like specifically that sparks you to kind of dive into, you know, studying and learning more about bioenergetics? Or was that really just like the use of the moxie? <laughs> yes, for sure. The use of moxie, for sure. I, I laugh because I think about like, there's a book that I read, uh, The Vital Question. I don't know if you know, The Vital Question by Nick Lane. Um, <laughs> and it's really, he's trying to understand like the origin of life, you know, like something like crazy, awesome. right? And I like reading stuff like this. 
Um, and in the vital question, it gets to this process of like, how did eukaryotic cells, like how did, uh, you know, complex cells that we're made of, uh, how did they evolve? Like, where did, where did that process start, you know? And there's something called the um, endosymbiotic theory, which is essentially looking at like this, this process where you had like a bacterial cell and an archaean cell that sort of merged together and that, that bacterial cell became a mitochondria. And that bacterial cell sparked like this emergence of complex life as we know it. And the thought process for this guy, uh, for Nick Lane was that, you know, energy was at the origin, you know, because mitochondria kind of separated, uh, like allowed us to now grow larger and more complex. And so that is at the origin. And so <laughs> that's just fascinating to me that like energy is at the origin of life as we know it. Like how crazy is that? And it all stems from like these mitochondria, which we just, we always hear are so important and like the powerhouses of the cell, um, you know, so that was like, you know, my crazy way of thinking like, oh, this is like a really important process and this applies to me in some fashion. So I should study this and understand this at a, at a deeper level. So that was just, it's just fascinating to me. And that's kind of the accepted theory, by the way, is like the endosymbiotic theory is like accepted as like that potentially is how this, this process emerged. And it only happened once in the history of the, of the universe, you know, so my man, for, for someone that warned us that Jared was going to whip out a lot of big words, you have hit endosymbiotic theory and Jacksonian dissolution. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, Jared, <laughs> he has these, I don't know, he's got this, these crazy, like, words where you're like, wait, what? I got to, like, look things up all the time. But yeah, you're probably right. There's a few out there, but it's not, not frequent for boys, boy, boy, man. So uh, what I was, I, I think it's, I think it's my unofficial role in this podcast to try to uh, bring things back to reality and application whenever possible. So yeah. like in regards to this energy system development type stuff, what was common practice for conditioning in the NBA? I don't know, say 20 years ago. And then what are some of the more updated techniques that you're employing with your athletes now? Yeah. Um, that's a tough one because I, I obviously wasn't here 20 years ago to work in the NBA. So I'm not really sure to, to speak on like what other people were doing. Um, you know, I think of, I think of if the way that I apply like the old model and how that's evolved. Um, when I say the old model, just like the thinking of this partitioned approach of like, of, of energy system development in terms of, okay, I'm going to like program certain things based upon thinking that this is like, what's what reality is. That's changed significantly because I think what we realize um, is that everything requires energy, right? Like everything that we do requires energy. And it's this, it's really like the, the, the toll that we must pay is ATP, right? So if everything requires energy and everything is, is uh, cost us ATP, then, you know, it's like the rate of ATP is dependent, uh, rate, rate of ATP depletion is dependent on force and time it's that it is that interplay. It's just force and time. And so there's different systems that are involved in that, but it's just, it's that simple. Like the, the higher the, the amount of force, the higher the amount of, of ATP that you need to use, um, you know, over a certain period of time, like that is ultimately going to, going to challenge my, my energy systems, if you will. So I guess the way that I think about it is like, it's, it's, it's removed. I've removed my mindset from thinking like, Oh, I have to do this bike workout or this running workout or these like, you know, three hundreds or something like that. Like that is what energy systems is like. It's, it's everything it's weight training. It's, you know, it's, it's 
it's lifting. It's like, it is conditioning and whatever. It's all the same thing. It's all this just interplay of like force and time. And so I think the way that that's carried out is, is in a number of ways, just depending on like, I guess what you're, what you're trying to improve. But, um, but I think like, you know, there's, there's a, yeah, I'm going to go down a, a too much, too much of a rabbit hole here probably. So I'll, I'll, I'll pick this one to like how this is, how this is actually carried out is, is, um, you know, dependent on, on what I'm, what I'm trying to improve, I guess, specific to like that athlete's needs. And so I think looking at, at where things tend to break down within the sport in terms of like where fatigue starts to build up and how that limits their ability to complete, you know, their tasks, I think intervening with certain, certain things is what I'm, what I'm trying to do, but that could be, that could be a, a, a weight training technique that could be, you know, strength training uh, intervention where I'm doing, you know, lots of reps or something uh, to, to challenge their energy systems in that fashion. That could be on a bike that could be running on, you know, on the court. Like there's just many ways to maybe attack this thing. And so I think the way that uh, I used to think about it was there was only certain methods I could use. And now I think I can use anything to just get after what I want. So going back to like the 15, 20 reps, like that is an energy system challenge. You know, that is not just like strength, you know, we call it strength endurance. That's like a challenge of their ability to, you know, to generate energy for a certain period of time and producing certain force. Um, so that was maybe a tangential answer for no, fine. a little more simple. So, cool. so this transformation for you then has mainly just been to rethink that like every, everything that you do, like even the skill development work a player does on the court is a form of energy systems development versus yes. needing this discrete, like, okay, today is the low intensity steady state day. Today is the, uh, like PCR day. Yeah. Yes, for sure. So like it okay. removes we think about it maybe from like a, a methodological standpoint, like I'm going to do these things because this is the day that we're like, it's a steady state day or whatever. It's like, no, everything can, can kind of tie back to energy. Right. Because like, even when you're doing strength training, it can tie back to energy because you know, if you look at like the cell doesn't know if you're running or if you're lifting, like it has no, it has no idea. Right. But this is where this process occurs. So it's like, you have this signal that gets sent, from the nervous system that you know releases some things and then you have this like this sliding filament process and then that process allows the muscle to contract which is what you know you do with strength training or running or whatever and it's like that uses energy and and then there's certain systems that are stressed depending on the task so if i'm from running for instance i'm going to stress my respiratory system my cardiovascular you know my my, my heart my lungs um but it all culminates at the muscle where like this energy is happening. So again, I think it just comes back to like, yeah, you can look at everything through the lens of energy systems is sort of where the, the way I think about it. It's like, I went down this rabbit hole to, to think that there was maybe this difference between strength training and, and conditioning, but there really isn't. It's all the same process. It's just, you're just stressing different systems in different ways. Yeah. I, I love that. And it makes me think of, so, you know, my athletic background and most of the clients I see are distance runners in one way or another. And it's like the old school mentality of creating an elite distance runner is that you needed 
dedicated sprint work. You needed dedicated lactate work. You needed dedicated easy running because all those modalities target completely different systems. Right. When the reality is, and like a lot of the more up-to-date coaches know that like, you know, your aerobic system is going to be the thing that's, that's letting you recover between the sprints. Um, you're going to probably always accumulate lactate to some degree, no matter what you do. So it's just, it's really cool to see that idea permeating across like multiple sports, multiple disciplines. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's sort of, I think, I guess the main point is like, let's not look at things from like, again, methods and thinking that we're, ta we're taxing different systems. Like whatever you're doing is just, it's always an interplay. And this kind of leads into like one of my principles of like, it always, it, it is a, it is a, everything's a function of intensity, right? So you can plot intensity on this sort of graph. And that intensity is dependent on a certain level of force that you need to generate over a certain period of time, everything. So it's like, you can't partition these systems and think I'm going to target this system with this intervention, or I'm going to target that system with that intervention. It's like, probably you're probably wrong. Number one, and realize that like, everything is like, it's just all about intensity, which requires a certain level of force over a certain period of time. And that is going to ultimately dictate sort of, you know, uh, what you're actually getting. So that's awesome. I have two questions for you. One, to be like very, very specific, how do you actually, you know, what's your process for testing um, strength endurance? So for example, if you're doing a 15 rep max, are you doing sets to you reach like the highest load someone can do 15 reps? Or are you doing like, you know, you're reaching a load and then doing like an AMRAP, performing as many reps as possible. And like, that's the number you stick with. Yeah, for sure. I think each, depending on what we're like, what, what I'm going to evaluate is going to be dependent on um, maybe like what, what the warmup sets are and where I may be starting somebody, especially if I don't know much about them. Um, so sort of having some like standardized, like idea of what is, you know, where I want to start somebody. So if I'm doing like a, I don't know, like a leg extension or something like that. I sort of know, okay, a percentage of this person's body weight, they should be capable of performing this for 15, mm -hmm. 20 reps. Like, and I just take body weight, um, and say, okay, that's like a general place where I can maybe throw a 15, 20 rep max. And then, you know, a couple warm up sets leading into that. And then we'll evaluate that. And it's usually an AMRAP, right? It's like okay, yeah. 15, you know, I, in my head, I'm like 15 is a goal, but like hit as many as you can okay. you know, um, until like technical failure. And then we just see what they're capable of doing there. And then from there, it, you know, you can get a little more precise because some, the thing is too, like I, a lot of athletes, they don't know how to push, you know, they don't push themselves to those levels frequently. Mm -hmm. and so sometimes you get surprised, like someone will hit like 35 reps and you're like, Oh, that's not supposed to happen. That's like a lot of reps And some guys will hit, you know, seven reps. And so I think there's such as vast, like, it's like, if you actually push people to failure, which I think is kind of important, um, mm -hmm. or so now that I maybe used to think to just see what they're capable of, then it gives you a better ability to prescribe things because, Otherwise you may not know, like someone may shock and be like, Oh, wow, that's like, you just hit way, way more reps than I thought you were going to do. So, but yeah, finding yeah. a yeah, standard and then building up to that, maybe that standard in your head and seeing what they get. No, that's awesome. Cause you know, performing as many reps as possible, they'll be able to push themselves without like a limit of being like, Oh, I hit 15 reps stop. But then you can't like repeat that effort again. Right. Right. Um, Tim. Is there a particular exercise that you favor for that sort of a protocol with like, let's say lower, lower body? Like, are you, are you looking at a trap bar deadlift? Are you looking at a goblet squat variation? Like what sort of what's in that interplay of safety and intensity for that type of assessment? It's a great question. I mean, <clears throat> you definitely, your setting is going to dictate that, right? So this is why I say like, maybe I think 
pushing guys to that level is more important now than it maybe was uh, before. Maybe I didn't have to do that. I had more time and more, and, and there was probably more athletes in front of me where I didn't trust my abilities to like <laughs> have like a max day where everyone's going to failure and think that that was going to be like a safe and effective approach. So I think, yes, your setting will dictate that your ability to, to, you know, your proximity of like, if you're coaching one-on-one, -on -one, it obviously allows you to do that at a much more effective level and pick the right thing um, to evaluate. But I definitely have my preferred choices. I mean, I, I like to look at things in isolation. I like to look at things more integrated, right? So in isolation, we have certain machines that we'll look at um, that I'll look for just an ability to go to, to a certain level of max. And I don't really have to worry at all because it's, you know, it's so constrained. It's such a constrained task that there's no worry that, that there's anything, you know, potentially negative is going to happen. Um, but then when we're looking at, again, some of these more emergent, uh, kind of dynamic tasks like squatting and and hinging and stuff like that then i think uh that's where it becomes you know you have to you have to know who you're dealing with and so um so yeah i'd love to look at 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 trap bar i think that's in you know a pretty good one to to evaluate but i typically wouldn't do that early in the training process i don't know if i'm going to like to evaluate like a three rep max early in the training process i don't think it's I just think the risk reward is probably not in my favor there. Um, but maybe like a, a, a split squat, you know, I feel pretty confident about uh, a split squat and I can load that in a way that I feel pretty, pretty safe to fail. So I could do a, a goblet uh, split squat or a kettlebells by my side and go to, and go to failure and, and even just do an isometric in range and go to failure. I could look at something like that. And I think that, that, you know, that may be a great exercise to look at for somebody and see if there's a difference between left and right um, or what they're capable of in general, or, you know, there's, we have pieces of equipment now that are again, more constrained. So we can maybe do a hack squat assessment and, and, and see what is this person capable of producing in, in a hack squat exercise. But I think that the end, the main thing there is just what's safe, what's effective um, for your environment and what information gives you, gives you ammo to, to prescribe things, you know, but it's definitely that that's changed. So, yeah, Love that's it. changing my career. So. It's, it's, it's super interesting to hear you talk about bioenergetics because I think it's giving this whole, you know, overall perspective that has probably definitely changed um, for you over time. So, you know, I think in typical strength conditioning world, we think of, you know, speed and power exercises, strength exercises, conditioning, and more so like aerobic anaerobic. Now, um, you know, Jared talked about this a little bit yesterday, but has that, and correct me if I'm wrong, now, now you kind of look at things through like a bioenergetic, biomotor, biodynamics realm. C can you maybe like talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, this is where you, you sort of take these sort of like these big picture concepts, right? Like this, this concept I'm talking about when it comes to bioenergetics, it's like, what is my main, like, what is my main takeaway from that is that everything is like dependent on the power and the duration, like, and you just plot things and they okay. exist, so whether I'm doing a sprint or I'm running, you know, for 10 minutes, it's like, it, you can look at it through that, that, that vantage point. I can look at everything through that vantage point. Um, but then you get to like programming and it's like, well, that maybe doesn't help me because it's like, okay, I, I understand that. But then that maybe it's so simple, but then now I'm thinking, I can't think of everything through this like bioenergetic lens per se, because there's, there's other components of athletic development that I need to like focus on, like force, absolute force production, you know, um, impulse, peak force, those types of things. And so it's like, 
I can't necessarily look at some of those things through this bioenergetic lens because it doesn't serve me when I actually go down to like sit down to write a program. Mm. So then you think about, well, how do I partition programming, right? Because I need to have certain days that I program for certain things. And so I think in the past I had done so with like, oh, I have like a linear day and a lateral, you know, a, a, you know, linear day and then a multi-directional day, or I have a, a hinge day and a, and a squat day or something like that. And it's like, I think the more you kind of, the more I've like edu- try to educate myself, it's like, okay, why do I partition days that way? Because those aren't like, those are my own way to like look at qualitative things that I don't know. Yes, they matter, but I don't know if that matters for like an athlete actually improving, you know, in their sport, because I'm looking at very specific qualities that they need to be able to demonstrate. So when you think about partitioning days, like it's, it's so that I can look at that day when I write a program through the lens of a specific focus. And so that's where this biomotor and bioenergetic comes in. It's like, Oh, okay. So like bioenergetics mean means like I can look at anything through that lens, but I don't necessarily want to focus on that on certain days because I want to try to pull up other qualities. And so that's where like motor biomotor comes in where it's like, Oh, a biomotor day, I'm really trying to push impulse peak force, like, you know, rate of force development, like that is my main focus of the day. So when I program, I'm looking at that day through that lens. And that allows me now to target certain qualities that are hopefully going to raise the level of performance. And then, okay, but I do have this bioenergetic day because I do think that's important. So I look at everything I program through that particular lens, you know, and then there's these biodynamic days, which are, you know, maybe more, uh, maybe more qualitative, maybe more motor control centric, focused on, you know, the quality of, of how they move and whatnot, and just working on specific things for that individual. And so it just maybe allows me again to, to, it, it serves me to be able to write programs better because it just allows me to look at that day through that lens. And then the other thing is when you think about like what drives adaptation, there has a, there has to be a certain threshold of like volume that you actually put into, into train, into, into targeting something in order for that, to actually reach a level of overload where it can adapt. So having a day that allows me to maybe build up a certain level of volume to build, you know, to, to target that quality is also really important. So if I were to do more of a concurrent approach maybe and do like just hit, you know, high force output on the first series and then go and hit maybe like more capacity focused stuff for the second series, it's like maybe I don't reach that volume threshold that drives that adaptation as effectively as if I just put it on a different day, you know? And so that's another piece I think comes into play and, and really, um, really helps me understand like how this actually applies in practice. I love that. I think I, I talk a lot about, you know, using your, your principles and the, the, being able to create categorizations to think and think in buckets and use that to create like a programming template. So, you know, it really streams line decision-making of, Hey, this is where this goes. This is where that goes. And you're kind of using those three buckets or two buckets to kind of say, this is what I'm going to focus on this day to make sure I hit, you know, volume thresholds and um, create targeted adaptations, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. So this is where I want to switch a little bit topics of, you know, I consider you a very well-read individual. I feel like you have like your hands in all these types of buckets with your learning. So I would love to hear a little bit about your learning strategy, you know, what drives you. And um, I know you've talked to me personally about, uh, you know, T-shaped learning concept. So if you can kind of like uh, tell everyone what that, what that means a little bit. Yeah. I just think it's like, um, 
maybe a framework to understand like how do you actually like educate yourself on a certain topic right and it's this concept of range you know so we've talked it's range and it's depth right you have this range of knowledge and then you have this depth of knowledge and if you draw that um it's good that it's a video because you can see like this t <laughs> is like this there's this horizontal component and you want to maybe educate like i think about educating myself and, and learning as much as i can like and having big range but that range is only so thick right because if i only you know, I'm, I might know a little bit, like I would say, I know enough to be dangerous in like nutrition or psychology or, you know, whatever. It's like pick different topics and maybe educate myself on this sort of like wide breadth, um, horizontal like component of this T. And then there's the depth of knowledge and the depth of knowledge is maybe the vertical component of that T. And that allows me, maybe I want to think about trying to, there's certain things, certain components of my job where I really want to have a depth of knowledge, a deep, deep sense of understanding where I want to spend time maybe increasing that like that vertical like range right there so in general i just use that as like oh that makes a lot of sense to me as like a general framework um but like learning strategies in general um you can relate to training there's like accumulation phase there's like a uh, assimilation phase and then there's like an actualization phase like there's accumulating knowledge and trying to gain this insight of like this topic assimilating it to like what is important you know in my setting or to me and how to connect all these different ways of thinking about this topic and then being able to like put it in play and see if it worked you know and so it sort of it sort of follows that same trajectory of like you assimilate you know you accumulate assimilate and then you kind of figure out what works and whatnot so it's kind of process and do you have certain things like is like the day-to-day -day stuff that you do in, in your current role is that what you fill with like your depth of knowledge yeah, I think work pr provides you the opportunity to like determine what you need to focus your time on. You know, I think if you pay attention um, to like what's important in work, like are you solving the problems that everybody has problems that they need to solve? Everybody has things that like inevitably come up, whether that's with a client, you know, or the, with the dynamics of your staff or whatever it is. There's different things that you probably uh, that probably present themselves frequently. And so, um, determining those things is is usually highlighted at, at at work and then that maybe guides you towards a direction of what you need to spend time educating yourself on and that's sort of how I've tried to treat education which is maybe I'm sort of like why I'm a little bit flimsy at times where I kind of push myself in different directions based upon what I'm what I'm trying to to solve at the time Love that. yeah if, if there was any doubt as to whether or not you practice what you preach in regards to this breadth of knowledge, like <clears throat> Jacksonian dissolution, pretty intense psychological concept. And then, I mean, you know, you went into molecular and cellular biology. So I just think that's such a, it's such a, it's such a cool illustration of like that you need both. And I think, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of people will think that you just have to be incredibly specific to be successful. But I think the more and more specific you get down one let's call it rabbit hole or pathway, the more you can see the utility of like that more generalized approach. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I remember hearing somebody talk about like, there's like three stages. There's like this stage where of, of like understanding there's like this stage where like somebody tells you something very simple about a topic and like for the first time and you're like, Oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like that's so simple. Like it's so easy, right? Like if, if, if I say bioenergetics is this interplay of force and time, and that's all it is. It's just this like cons like general concept. It's like, okay, I can explain that in a very simple way. And it makes total sense. 
But then there's like the second layer where it's like, well, you've got to go down that rabbit hole to really realize that like, as soon as you start diving down, you realize, oh, it's not so simple. Like, oh, there's so many variables and like, there's all these different things. And then you spend enough time down the rabbit hole, you come right back to the top and you're like, oh yeah, it's pretty simple. You know, like the way I look at this is actually still pretty simple. So it's like, that's why we can be maybe naive early on in our, in, in, in our development as coaches and practitioners. Cause like, we see this, like, we're, we, we think everything's so simple and then we dive down this, this rabbit hole. And then we come back to like simplicity. We try to come back to this sort of like simplistic view of how, how this actually works. And, and, uh, but it's the, it's the layers of depth under underneath it that allow you to really be more effective in your prescription of things because you, you realize some of the interplay, but also realize that, you know, you have probably a better view of your, of your ability to apply something because you just have this, this depth underneath that. So. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost like a version of the Dunning Kruger effect where it's like, initially yeah. you just don't know what you don't know. Exactly. So you're just blindly confident. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So this, this provides me with what could not be a more perfect segue to probably one of our final questions here. And you've talked about bioenergetics a lot. So I want to make that completely off limits to your answer of this question, but what's one thing that you thought was an absolute truth five years ago that, you know, you now shudder to, to think about, or you now have changed your mind on 180 degrees. It's, it's pretty tough because that's actually a really, that's a hard question for me because I, I've always had a little bit of skepticism in my own process. Oh, like I, I can always, not always remember, but I can think of like, I've never been crazy glued to like this, these ideals. So it's hard for me to say like, what have I changed my mind 180 degrees on? Because I don't know if I was ever like a, a gung ho, like, Hey, this is how it's done kind of person where it's like, Oh shit. Like I realized I didn't, that was being an idiot, but I would say like probably the easy answer for me is the utility of like machines. <laughs> you know, I think it's like, that's probably a decent one because I sort of like, yeah. like I think early on my, my, education and my experience of my mentors and like my perspective was guided towards maybe a functional movement encompassing like these like movement patterns that are you know not they're not they're not using machines they're free weights and you know learning how to move your bodies in space and that's how you load people and that's how you train you train functionally and realizing that like that that term function is really kind of interesting to think about and so there's probably a big utility uh, with machines and my setting provides me an opportunity to use those at a pretty high level more so than maybe a college setting. Um, so that's probably the, the thing that comes to mind is like, okay, like I didn't factor these in as, as much as I, I would now in terms of their utility to actually improve function for, for the athlete. So that's probably the, the biggest one. So you were a guest speaker in my uh, group classroom a few months, which was fantastic. And I know Tim got to watch that as well. And, you know, a lot of people were asking about your NBA experience, a lot of practical strength conditioning information. And at the end, you know, you kind of tapped into some philosophy kind of aspects. And you said something around the guards of, uh, regards of, you know, avoiding people, who are emotional about what they believe to be true and are wrapped, they have wrapped their identity in their jobs. And um, I probably think about that at least once a week 
since you said that. And I have a bunch of things here that I take notes on too that will I will probably consistently do. Um, but I want you to kind of maybe go into some things that you value in your life or how that have kind of allowed you to navigate the world and interact with people differently since you've learned them and maybe how that's uh, evolves over time. Yeah, I think um, that's a, that's, that's a, a great, deep question. That's a deep question. Yeah. Like how do, how do you navigate the world? Um, well, when I think about like avoiding people who are emotionally charged and maybe like wrap their identity in what they do. Um, I think like early on, I had enough mentors that kind of like slap my slap, I guess, like, <laughs> like slap my ideas around and thinking like there was like, I uh, was like, I knew the truth. I think I had enough like early on to maybe show me that I, that's not the case. Like that, like you have to learn, you have to continue to evolve because most of what you believe in, like you're going to prove yourself that it was proved yourself that it was probably wrong. So don't believe too tightly to anything that you think is true. Um, you know, uh, most of what you believe in, you're going to change your mind on, you know, in some fashion or it's going to evolve. Your thinking will evolve. So that leads to like, well, what's underneath that? I think it's humility. It's like having some humility to think about like most of the way this, that you see the world um, is going to change. And most of the ways that other people see the world is different than you. And we, we both maybe can come to different like conclusions in our own ways of like, you know, so have some humility in general, because uh, don't get, don't get yourself too wrapped up, you know, and this is sort of what I think what happens a lot is we, we work somewhere, we develop systems, and then we believe our system is the only way to do things. And it's like, eh, like other people have been successful for a long time doing things completely different than you. Um, so don't get too wrapped up in what you're doing uh, and, and, and why you think you're right, because you're probably wrong, you know? Um, and then like other things I think that, that are important there is just, you know, being, being a good person, like is so cliche to say, but it's like, that's helped me navigate the world a lot. And what does that mean to be a good person? You know, I think like your, like my relationship, I think with like my significant other allows me to really determine if I'm a good person or not, because it's like, it's like that just gives me maybe quicker feedback loops to the world in general as to like how I'm showing up for people. Um, and so all, all we, all we do is like in our work is, is build relationships with people that stand on foundations of like being a good person, listening to them, caring about them, having empathy, um, all those things. And I think like, I think that's why it's, it's so important to just, uh, you know, to, to, to just show up for people in a certain way and, and really be there for them and, and care about them and forge these relationships with them and stuff. And, and I think, um, again, I was exposed to that early on with like Mike Boyle making me read uh, how to win friends and influence people and, uh, <laughs> just like what that means. And so, um, yeah. yeah, deep answer. I don't know where I'm going. With that. It, just, it becomes like, just be a good person, uh, have some humility and, and uh, you know, care for others. Yeah. I, th I think I asked you that because, you know, like, I didn't realize how important that stuff was. So in the beginning, you mentioned or you referenced me being kind of quiet, right? And, you know, it's not like I have regrets, but, you know, I, I think that prevented me from developing maybe relationships, even with your, yourself when I was in, in grad school. Um, 
and you know, your personality is adaptable. So not having even a closed mindset in terms of, oh, I'm an introvert. I'm quiet. That's, you know, not excuse, but it's like, oh, I can grow from that. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think you mentioned other people and I think you have to go through life and be able to discern qualities of other people and say to yourself, you know, is this a quality that will get me where I want to be? Or is this a quality that I want to project to other people uh, and vice versa? Not. And if you can do that, I think it's, it's, that's probably the, the most invaluable um, quality that you can have as a person or the thing that you can do throughout your life, because mm-hmm. then you'll be able to say to yourself, you know, you know, you mentioned humility and treating people well. Well, if, if you can say to yourself that, that stuff and be able to reflect, Hey, am I doing this? Am I, you know, practicing humility? Like to me, like, that's what I get a lot from you. And that's what I really like something I really enjoy about you because you state these things. As, as something that's important to you, you talk about them. And I like when people are very direct with that stuff. I think, you know, a lot of the negative things about the academic system is they don't directly kind of state things. They kind of just secretly behind like closed doors imply them in, in terms mm-hmm. of like, oh, we, we are teaching you how to learn. Are you like, have you like directly taught people how to learn or learning strategies? Or are you just saying, Hey, like taking this information and take this test and that, and that's how you learn. You know what I mean? I need a little bit more obvious thing. And I think you do that really well. And I think that that's a value of of that. And so I, I genuinely appreciate that. Yeah. I think like the, the way that I think about it is like the way that you show up to the world, the world will show up to you. You know, it's like, (laughs) It's like you complain about not being in a relationship. It's like, well, are you somebody that you would want to be in a relationship with? You know, or like <laughs> if you complain about like not having like not connecting with people, it's like, are you somebody who's like, would you want to connect with yourself? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the way you show up, people will show up to you. And I think that's been that's proven me like true to me for long, like for a long time. It's like sometimes I'm not good at communicating. And when I'm not good at communicating, I don't connect with those people. And I look at that as an opportunity now to be better at how I show up. And so I think that that's such a valuable thing because I think you'll get more, more success if you show up as being somebody who, who kind of is, is like, is there for somebody else, you know, like you're going to connect with more people, the more you, you show up to connect with people and stuff. So I think you get out of life, what you put in obviously. And so I think that's the basis. Yeah. And I think it's tools for uh, navigating things that we didn't have 10 years ago. Like we didn't have social media, you know, when I was growing up or developing and, and kind of what you said of avoiding people who are emotional about what they do. Like, you know, it's kind of like letting me not get like disassociating my emotions from like social media things and knowing what I'm using it for and not, you know, wrapping my identity in, around that or not responding mm-hmm. to something negative someone says. Um, so it's also good tools for that as well. Definitely. But uh, this was fantastic. We probably could go for longer if, uh, if I didn't yeah. have a, a client waiting for me. But yeah. if anything today, you've justified my ATP tattoo. I'll, I'll tell you oh, that. I was nice. thinking about there that. Hell so I, ha- yeah. I have like the chemical symbol across my back and literally yeah. no one, no one knows that. And sometimes I'm like, dude, like, why did you do this? This was so stupid. Right. And now yeah. I'm like, every time someone asks me, I'm just going to be like, you know, everything's tied back to energy. And yeah, you know, back to energy. just How do you drop that it? line. 
<laughs> I love it. That's well, awesome. Eric, if people want to find out more about you or get in contact with you or learn more from you, um, is there any place uh, you want to send them? Um, I guess <laughs> like the social media uh, <laughs> Instagram is like the coach E Schmidt um, is probably the, the place to find me. Um, I'm not, not crazy, crazy active, but you know, I'm on there. I'm on there double tapping on people, you know, reading some nice, things. So nice. um, yeah, that's probably the route to go to, to find me. Awesome. And absolutely fantastic last name, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Well, all right, Eric, thank you so much for your time and uh, good luck with the rest of the Grizzly season. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us, and the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high-caliber guests and continuing to produce a high-quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool, and that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim Richard DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.